Chapter Three of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Three: The Letter and the Visitor. I will guide thee with mine eye. Before Dell had been at home a week, she received one morning a letter from her uncle Edward. She rushed with it to her own room and fairly hugged it to her heart and covered the soiled envelope and inky postage stamp with kisses before she set about devouring its contents. How delightfully familiar the smooth-flowing letters looked! Boston, August 15, 18 something. My dear Dell, dear daughter, I had nearly said, so much does it seem to me that I am writing to my own child, but even while I sighed to remember that you are not my daughter, and therefore not with us today, I rejoiced over the thought that you are a daughter of the eternal God, and that your father has you in his constant care and keeping. Your Aunt Laura sends love and a wish for your presence because of canned fruit, or fruit that is to be canned, or something of that sort. Not, of course, for any other reason. We attended the concert last evening without you. That part was sad. The concert was fine. Do you think much, during these concert days, which you were to enjoy, of the great multitude, which no man can number, clothed in white, and with palms in their hands, who sing with a loud voice, and cease not, day nor night? I thought of it last evening. Your Aunt Laura leaned forward to me during one of the parts in which we had expected to hear your voice, and said, She will not be missing from the other concert. When the ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, sing the triumphal song, our Dell will join the chorus. And I answered her, there is more to it even than that. I trust, because of her not being with us to-night, that there will be added voices to that chorus. Have you thought of it, Dell? Perhaps the father called you to that part of his vineyard just now, in order that you might induce some singers to join in the song that the redeemed from every nation and kindred and people and tongue shall sing. Dear Dell, don't go alone. I am sure there are people in Lewiston who have not thought about it, who yet will be glad to go with you when you press them to join you, and the thought brings me to the main reason why I am writing this letter in some haste, this morning, instead of being in my counting-room. God has opened a wonderful door to you. Do you remember the sentence in your father's letter, No drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of heaven? You have been carefully and prayerfully taught that truth until I think you feel it in all its fullness, and now the Father has called you to one of the centers where this truth is unknown or disregarded, that you may work and think and pray for the turning of tempted feet into the narrow path. I glory in your call, dear child. Be worthy of your commission. When he calls you home to give him your statement of the work, be sure that you have no undone duty pressing your conscience, and see to it in that hour you are not found standing idle. I did not mean to preach a sermon, dear child, that is not my vocation, you know. I only mean to give you little hints, here and there, of the peculiar trust the Lord must have in you to have given you thus early in life so wide and solemn a working place in his garden. I think you have learned so well whose daughter you are, and what the king expects of his child, and how blessed that child is in having the great king for a father, that, perhaps, it is quite unnecessary to remind you of the great and eager longing that there should be in your heart for your earthly father. Carry the desire about with you constantly, the longing to see him one day moving triumphantly among that countless throng. No, my dear Dell, that is bad advice. I mean, tell the great longing of your heart out freely to your elder brother, 
and ask his daily, hourly help. Do you know that I have put myself in such a position that I cannot help you in this matter? I mean, of course, by personal help. Your father will hear no word from me, because that word affects his business. At present it seems wiser for me to cease from personal effort. When you have reached that point, the king will make it known to you. Do not be afraid of entering doors that he has himself opened. There is much to say, and, as usual, very little time in which to say it. Is there less time in Boston than elsewhere, I wonder? Your class in Sabbath school troubles me. They do not seem to assimilate with Miss Terry. The truth is she wears too much bracelet, makes too marked a difference between her own toilet and that of the girls. Do you think it will do to give her a quiet little hint of the trouble? If she were only Del Bronson now, I would say it to her in all frankness, and I think she would receive it. I do not mean Del Bronson receiving a bit of truth from her Uncle Edward, but Del Bronson receiving it from her superintendent, or from anyone who meant it for her good, or, broader than that, from those who do not mean it for her good, so she could gather good from it. You told me once that I thought too highly of you. Don't allow me to. Dear Dell, grow far beyond my thinking, or even hoping. There are glorious possibilities of grace to be attained, a possible flight high enough for the ambition of an angel. Advise me, please, in regard to Miss Terry. Joe Turner still continues to pinch his next neighbor black and blue every Sabbath afternoon, so the neighbor says, and resolutely refuses to show any indications of civilization. Your Aunt Laura and I have taken him for our special subject of prayer. At home all is as usual, except the one great void made by your absence. Baby Laura has a new pearl, small and white, which she constantly uses, on rattle, on silver dollar, on her luckless holder's finger, as the case may be. I meant this letter to be brief, and it will not terminate. There is no way but to cut it short." One word about the main thought in it. If you are at a loss how to proceed, which way to turn, remember your father's letter of full and explicit instructions. Go to it and him for direction. Following this rule there is no possibility of mistakes. Good morning, dear child. Your loving uncle. Dell folded the letter with a look on her face made up of eagerness and dismay. There was a little rush of tears to her eyes, but she brushed them quickly away and indulged in her favorite employment, talking to herself. What a singular letter that would be if it came from anyone in this world but Uncle Edward! The idea of congratulating me upon the door opened for me. Now my opinion would be that the door of temperance was shut and bolted and barred. Whoever heard of the daughter of a rum-seller living in a hotel preaching temperance? Dell's cheeks glowed as she spoke, and her lips quivered, Yet this was the bare, undeniable fact, and such was her nature that she had to face disagreeable truths, plainly and firmly, in order to endure them at all. What on earth am I to do, she continued, with eager tongue? If I were only a girl in a book now, there would be no end to the wonders that I could perform. I should go on bended knees to my father, and with tears in my eyes implore him not to sell any more rum, and immediately he would shed tears, and promise to listen to my petition then we too would empty all the rum barrels and convert the village, and then travel around and convert the world. That is the way book girls do, but, most unfortunately, I am not that style of girl, and even if I were, it would do no sort of good to beg my father to give up a money-making business. Did not my poor mother's pale face beg for that every day of her life? I wish Uncle Edward had been more explicit. 
He must be right, he generally is. But what in the world I can do for the cause of temperance, situated as I am at present, is more than I can imagine. A more utterly hopeless cause could not be given me. My very eagerness to do something makes my powerlessness all the more plain. She was pacing up and down her room now, with the eager look changed to one of perplexed thought. The letter had aroused the one great burden always crouched at her heart. Her father was a rum-seller, a respectable, licensed, drunkard-maker. She, Del Bronson, who had been brought up in her uncle's house to utterly loathe and abhor the sight of liquor, to refuse its use in any shape or form, to work and plan and pray for its banishment from the civilized world, must every day face an army of rum-drinkers, must hear their silly jokes as she passed through the halls, must lie awake at night and listen to their drunken songs or quarrels or oaths, must pass by houses made wretched by the daily presence of the demon, and remember that her father furnished the poison at so much a glass, must watch his own face grow redder, his eyes more bleared, his steps more uncertain every day, and yet be absolutely powerless and helpless. She fairly groaned as the vivid picture of all this came before her. Did she remember that fearful sentence, No drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of heaven? Oh, did she not? Sometimes it seemed written in letters of fire all over the walls of this licensed hotel. How Dell hated that word licensed, nobody knew. No drunkard, and her father not only made drunkards, but the law pronounced it a legitimate business, actually trafficked in souls at so much a soul. No, not even that, but reckoned them in masses, these souls that must live on and on forever, gave a man the right to ruin just as many of them as he possibly could, provided he paid for the privilege a few dollars a year. What can I do, she said, in anguish of soul, as her heart sickened at the thought of all this, and at the added anguish that her father had bought the privilege of barring his own soul out of heaven as well as that of others. What does Uncle Edward think it possible for me to do? Why didn't he tell me? If he only realized as I do that I can do nothing, nothing. Then her eye fell on the closing lines in the letter. If you are at a loss how to proceed, which way to turn, remember your father's letter of full and explicit instructions. Go to it and to him for direction. Following this rule there is no possibility of mistakes. And as she re-read the words, gradually the look of pain died out from her face, and there came first a calm and then a smile. My father's letter, she said softly. I am constantly forgetting that my father is watching and planning, and is more interested than I can be. Uncle Edward is right. He must have something that he intends me to do, else he would not have called me here. I wonder what my instructions are, and where I shall look for them. She unclasped her little Bible, not with any definite end in view, for she knew she had no time just then to search for directions, but from a kind of habit she had of picking up the little book and just glancing at some earnest word or loving promise. But her whole face flushed and her eyes brightened as they caught the sentence, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. The promise was not new to her. It only came suddenly home to her heart with that wondrous power that every lover of the Bible understands, a power that makes it seem as though those particular words were spoken just then by some wonderfully distinct voice, and spoken for you entirely and only. Dell instantly shut her Bible and dropped upon her knees, and the first sentences of her prayer were, My father, it is enough. I yield myself to thee. Instruct and guide me as thou wilt, 
lead where thou wilt, thy daughter is ready to follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Ah, dear father, perhaps I am not, I don't know, but make me willing, make all me that thou wouldst have me. Five minutes afterward she was summoned to the tea-room to see a caller. This same tea-room deserves a word on its own account. It was an emanation of Dell's brain, not the room exactly, but its belongings and uses. It was a little square room with a side door leading into the yard, and had been bare of furniture, and had been appropriated to no better use than to serve as a sort of general storeroom for umbrellas, overcoats, hats, rubbers, shawls, anything that might be needed of a rainy day. Dell had seized upon it, banished the rubbish to appropriate dark closets, dragged to light enough carpeting to cover its bit of floor, hung the windows in cream color, repapered the walls, brought from the attic an old table with three legs, coaxed the hostler into adding a fourth, covered it daintily with an old cream-colored curtain, brought from her mother's room an old worn chair, stuffed and padded its back, seat, and sides, and dressed it in cloth of the same creamy tint, filled the window-seat with little pots of sweet-smelling flowers brought from her Boston home, strewn the table with bright inviting books, and altogether converted the former storeroom into one of the daintiest, softest, sunniest, and quietest of little rooms that her father at least had ever seen. Dell, in writing to Aunt Laura about it, said, I call it the tea-room for reasons that I will explain to you when my plans are fully developed. But, between you and me, it might be more appropriately called the trap-room, and I mean it to wage war against that fearful bar-room. How shall, with many other things, be told you hereafter? It had cost her two days of hard labor, and her last act had been to lay the two daily papers that Uncle Edward had sent her on the little cream-colored table, and inform her father, when she called him to survey the room, that he would always find the latest papers on that table, and the armchair vacant at any hour of the day. So when as she entered the room on this particular morning, and beheld her father cosily seated in the armchair, engaged in tearing the wrapper from the late paper, she flushed with pleasure, and felt that her trap had commenced its work. Her collar was a wee sprite of a child, daintily done up in a peak dress, with blue ribbons floating at her waist and among her brown curls. Small and sweet and shy, with a winning ladylike shyness, and her voice was as clear as a flute's, when she looked with her truthful blue eyes into Dell's brown ones and said, If you please, Miss Bronson, will you sign my temperance pledge? End of chapter 3 Recording by Tricia G.